I ask that you'd take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, this week beginning chapter 15. Before we read this passage, I'd I'd just like to point out, uh, we can sometimes get tripped up by these chapter and section divisions that we find in our Bibles. These, of course, were not added to the text until the Middle Ages, the uh, chapter and verse divisions. Uh, And all of these headings that we find were added even later than that. They're very helpful for us uh, to find divisions and so that I can tell you to turn to Luke 15 and you all know exactly where to go. Uh, But sometimes they obscure what's actually happening. And there's something very happening here, uh, very important happening here, uh, between chapter 14 and chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. If you found it, uh, likely on page 874 of your ESVs, You remember that the last words of chapter 14, after Jesus has just been speaking of the cost of discipleship, that discipleship will cost those who follow Jesus everything, he issues a call, almost a challenge, but it's a prophetic statement here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the very first words, the opening words of chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's not incidental. Uh, That's rather uh, important, I think, though it will not play into uh, the the study of the rest of our our sermon. You need to see that, and you need to see that Luke is working his way systematically through what is happening as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And as events unfold, he's tying these things together. Uh, He shows us Jesus going out and calling disciples to himself, and he shows us the Holy Spirit, as we'll find here, Jesus coming uh, to seek and to save the lost. And it always happens in just the way that he, uh, that he determines it will. That his word goes out, that he calls those to hear who have ears, and lo and behold, many gather around to hear him. There are others who grumble, and we'll see that as well. And this chapter actually is one contained unit, uh, all three parables here. We won't look at all of them, uh, but you're aware of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and then the prodigal son. Uh, Today, looking at chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now, before we read these words together, let us uh, join our hearts together again in prayer and seek God's blessing on the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you have spoken these words. You have written them down uh, by holy men of old who were carried along by your Holy Spirit Uh, to give us, as it were, the very words of your mouth, that we should know and rejoice in Jesus Christ. But Lord, tonight you show us that you know and rejoice over your people. And so we pray that you would help us to share your joy, help us to worship you, help us to see more of Christ our Savior, and to be in awe of you, O Lord, who seeks and saves the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now won't you stand together with me as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word as we find it, Luke chapter 15, tonight reading verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, 
For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You may be seated. One of uh, the earliest games uh, that we played in our household with our children was uh, a version of hide-and-seek. It was pretty lame uh, for our very young children. It wasn't, uh, wasn't that rousing if you were a teenager. It wasn't uh, like capture the flag out running in the dark somewhere, but it was, uh, it was normally me hiding in a pretty obvious place, somewhere in a closet, somewhere behind a door or next to the bed, and I would call the children uh, to me to come and find me, and they would toddle over to where I was, and when they found me, we would erupt into laughter, and we would hug, and we would tickle, and then I'd go find another closet, and we'd start all over again. Uh, the situation is, is more frightening, though, when it's the parents who can't find the children. Uh, when I was a child, my brother wandered off in a very large open-air market. I was pretty young, but I still remember uh, the emotion and the frantic search, and I remember the, uh, the call going out over the loudspeaker trying to find this boy who was separated from his family. And maybe you know the anxiety of searching. Maybe you know the relief of being found. But in our passage tonight, Jesus declares the joy of the God who seeks his people. The two parables that we read actually form, as I mentioned already, a single unit together with the rest of this chapter. Three stories, as it were, uh, all contained under the singular in verse 3. Jesus told them this parable, one story really, in three different ways. It's all one story, uh, three versions of seeking and the joy that comes with finding. And the beauty really of this parable, this extended story, is what it reveals about the character of God. Because in the Jewish mind, of course, God was a welcomer. God was a shepherd. He was, he was a father ready to reconcile his people. God was a bridegroom who rejoiced to receive uh, his bride to himself, but God in the mind of the Jews was categorically not a seeker. According to the rabbis, God was a graduate of the Little Bo Peep School of Shepherding. If there were sheep who had lost their way, the best thing to do is to leave them alone and let them figure out how to get back to where they ought to be. Despite the optimism of that nursery rhyme, that's not actually how sheep work, though. And thankfully uh, for the sheep, that's not how God shepherds. God actually is a seeker. He is a finder. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus, that God sent Jesus into the world to bring home lost sinners. And that's why this crowd of sinners flocked to Jesus. They came to him because they heard his voice. They came to him because they found in him the friend of sinners. And that, I think, is the first thing that Luke shows us in this passage. It is that Jesus is the sinner's friend. Jesus is the sinner's friend. Now, in the closing chapter of the book of Genesis, you may recall that Joseph gathers his brothers around him, and he reveals to them that wonderful truth of God's sovereignty. He says, 
that all that they had done against him. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's the same situation here, I think. The evil that the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled against Jesus was that he's the kind of person that recklessly associated with all the wrong Israelites. Verses 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And they meant it to be a dig on his character. That was their evil intention. They meant it to be uh, this, this sort of revealing fact that despite what Jesus may want us to think about him, there's no possible way that he's a teacher sent from God because no self-respecting teacher in Israel would hang out with these low-life tax collectors and sinners. Everybody who's familiar with the New Testament knows how hated the tax collectors were. Uh, they were those Jews who collaborated together with the Romans. So by their very profession, they were, they were scum, they were lowlifes, they were scoundrels and traitors. But the category of sinner was a bit more nebulous. It wasn't as easily defined. It included uh, all of those obviously outward transgressors in Israel. The category of sinners included people like thieves and drunks and cheats in the marketplace. The category of sinners included those dirty old men whose eyes and hands were always wandering. It included perhaps women who kept an open bed and an open mind for just the right price. In the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, when they talked about a sinner, they weren't talking about some theological statement of, of total depravity that encompassed all of humanity. They were talking about those disgusting people over there who seemed to love to flaunt their disdain for God's law. And the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, measured their piety in degrees of separation. Their chief virtue was maintaining a distinction between the clean and the unclean. And so they marked distinctions and, and sought them out between clean and unclean foods, between clean and unclean practices, between clean and unclean people. The rabbis even had a saying. It said, let not a man associate with sinners even to bring them near to the Torah. It's a little Bo Peep school, isn't it? If they're wandering out there, just let them figure it out. We'll be here when they get there, but we're not going after anybody, even to teach them the Torah. Don't, don't stand in the way of mockers. Don't sit in the seat of scorners. Don't, uh, don't hang out with sinners. We're not going to have anything to do with them. And yet here was Jesus, and he's meeting and he's eating with these moral outcasts. He is making a mockery of the Pharisaic approach of cleanliness by disassociation. And so they murmured in his general direction. This man receives sinners. He eats with them. He goes and he sits under the same roof and he gathers around the same table. He shares table fellowship with sinners. And they meant it to be a stain on his ministry. But what they meant for evil, God intended for good. That's the way he works. God has ordained the truth from the mouth of babes, and he can do the same thing with the mouth of the Pharisees. And so the very thing that they, they spit out against him, the very thing that they saw was, uh, was so hateful about Jesus' ministry, what they disdained about him, that's exactly what makes him attractive to those who are spiritually lost. And what they said here really is one of the most wonderful truths to be found anywhere in the Bible, that Jesus receives sinners. 
Well, he told other Pharisees the same thing back in chapter 5. It's been a couple years now, so you'll be forgiven if you forget. We were there uh, back in chapter 5, and Jesus was meeting with tax collectors and the scribes and the Pharisees again, and in that chapter they grumbled, not to Jesus this time, not at Jesus, but at Jesus' disciples, and they wondered why they were breaking bread in the home of Levi. And Jesus responded that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you see, this is not an insignificant aspect of Jesus' ministry. Luke is putting it before us now for the second time so that we would know, so that we'd be convinced that Jesus is not ashamed to associate with sinners. He's putting it before us all over again so that we would know that our sin is not a reason to stay away from Jesus, not a reason to think that he would shun us if we got too close to him. Rather, our sin is the very reason we ought to be coming to Jesus and drawing near to him. Our sin is the very reason we ought to draw near with confidence and hope that in the Savior we'll find the friend of sinners. It might be that our sin is obvious like the drunks and the thieves in Israel. It might be that our sin plays nice and it's quiet. It's hidden when you want it to be and it stays mostly in your head, it stays mostly in your heart when you don't want anybody else to know about it. Then when you get a moment to yourself, when nobody else is around, you can pull it down, you can take it out, you can enjoy a little bit, you can feel like you're getting away, from, away with something and, and you coddle it and, and enjoy your sin and then put it back away before anybody else sees it. And then you come in here on a Sunday evening and you see all these nice-looking Presbyterian people and you think, well, maybe that's the crowd that Jesus hangs out with. Because they look like they're clean on the outside. They look like they're... Uh, they've got their lives together. They look like they're not dealing with the sins that you're dealing with because their sin remains hidden too. And you think, well, maybe Jesus only deals with those who are, are together and, and they're washed and, and they're clean on the outside and the inside. And Luke doesn't want you to miss it. Jesus is the sinner's friend. It's the glory of his ministry, actually. Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. He has table fellowship with them. He's going to have table fellowship with a bunch of sinners tonight. Around his table, at the end of our service, he'll invite us to himself. He'll call us to himself because, because that's what he does. Jesus receives sinners, not to leave them where they are, but to speak peace to them, to draw them out of the darkness, to draw them to himself. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in order to do that saving work, Jesus is not afraid to get a little bit close to sinners. In fact, that's why he came. Jesus said in the home of another tax collector all over again, the conversion of Zacchaeus, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that brings us to the second thing Luke wants us to see, and that is the Savior's search. We've seen the sinner's friend, and now he draws us to the Savior's search. Now, the parables in our passage are most often known as the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. In fact, that's the heading that we see here in our ESV. But, but they could just as well be called the parables of the seeking shepherd and the searching woman. Because actually, the, the coin, the sheep, don't have major roles in the parables. They're, they're minor players here. All of the drama focuses around 
the one who's seeking, the one who's looking. There's a sheep, but it's simply missing, and it stays that way until it's found. There's a coin, but it's, it's collecting dust in a corner somewhere, and it stays that way until the room is swept and put in order, and it's found. And all the drama surrounds the one who's seeking. If these stories here were made into a miniseries on Netflix, the camera would be fixed on the shepherd in the wilderness seeking for his sheep. The camera would be fixed on the woman on her hands and her knees, looking under every piece of furniture, scouring every inch of the floor. That's the point, the focus of these parables. They illustrate the lengths to which Christ will go to reclaim those who belong to him. These parables are portraits of the determination of the God who seeks us out. There's a sub-theme here, though, as well. And it's the theme of the value that God places on his wandering children. If we were to read the whole chapter, you'd see that pretty clearly in the way that the lost portion in each of these three mini parables uh, generally increases in value and in worth. It begins as 1% for the sheep. It goes up to 10% for the coins. It goes up to 50% for the sons. And it increases there as well from sheep to silver to sons. And you see this increasing value as we go along. And that's really, that's a counter dig, if you will, to the, to the Pharisees, to the scribes. Because by the end of the chapter, after they've already begun to agree with Jesus, actually, yes, that is what we would do. Of course, that's what we do. By the end, he puts the sinners and the tax collectors on a 50-50 footing with all the scribes and the Pharisees. But at the beginning, it's really hard to see what all the fuss is about. Consider the shepherd. You know, every industry uh, has their ratios of expected loss, right? In retail, it's known as shrinkage. And it's all the goods that you expect to be damaged or, or returned or slipped into somebody's pocket and just never paid for. And you, you account for these things. In the whiskey-making business, the uh, the distillers talk about the angel's share, right, that, that, uh, that evaporates as it mellows out in the casks. And I have no idea what the accepted ratio of loss is for a shepherd, but one out of 100 doesn't sound too bad. And you're almost expecting the shepherd simply to accept the loss and, and zero the balance and, and just forget about it. And there he goes, off tramping through the wilderness, going and, and passing through streams and briars, looking for that one lonesome little sheep who, you know how sheep are, they just... They put their nose down and they eat and they just follow their appetite wherever it leads them. And they're not thinking about it and they just go and they wander. And the shepherd goes after that sheep. It almost doesn't seem worth it. And that's what the good shepherd does. He pursues what belongs to him. He goes after the one that is lost until he finds it, it says in verse 4, until he finds it. And then there's the situation with the woman, and this is a little bit worse, because she has ten coins, probably only ten coins. It could be that they're her life savings. It might be that they're her dowry. And she's given these things when she's married, and she brings them into the marriage with her as a kind of insurance policy in case her husband should die before, uh, before his time, and she's left to herself, and she's got ten coins, each one worth a day's wages. That's all. It doesn't matter if they're a dowry or they're a savings. It doesn't, doesn't matter how many times you count those coins. She's a very poor woman, and one-tenth of her earthly possessions is lost. It's somewhere, though. She, she knows it's somewhere in the house. She, she hasn't taken them out. She knows it's got to be there, and, and uh, maybe it's under the straw that lined the floor. Maybe it was tossed accidentally into a corner. 
And what woman can you think of? Can you, can you imagine your mother, perhaps, saying, one-tenth of the family savings, don't worry about it. We'll just, we'll just strike it, we'll start over with nine. Can you imagine your wife doing that? Ladies, could you imagine doing that in the household? Take your nest egg, divide it in half, throw it somewhere under the floorboards, just forget about it. Is that what you would do? No, she does what any woman would do. She lights a lamp, she sweeps the floor, she keeps on looking until she finds it. And there's the repetition of those words. It reveals the stress of the parable. They both keep looking until what they're seeking for has been found. Because when what is yours has gone missing, you look for it. You don't look just a little, and you don't just look until you're bored. You're bored. You look and you seek the things that belong to you until you find what you're searching for. And that's the kind of searching that the Savior does. He's like the shepherd who goes after the one in 99. He's like the, the woman who scours every inch of the house until she finds her treasure. Christ is the Savior who seeks until he finds. And that was why he was hanging out with those sinners. That was why he welcomed the tax collectors. That was why he allowed sinful women to bathe his feet in tears and perfume. And if only the Pharisees had ears to hear, they might have heard God's word being fulfilled in Jesus' parables and in his ministry. God had said by the mouth of his prophet, Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Verse 16, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, the good shepherd. And Christ is that good shepherd. That's why he traversed time and space to lay aside heavenly glory. That's why he emptied himself into the form of a servant. It's why he endured the ridicule of the scribes and the Pharisees on his way up to Jerusalem. It's why he willingly laid down his life as a ransom for many. He did it because he was seeking to save that which was lost. And many of you have your own story about how, how Christ sought you. How he sought you with his gospel when you weren't even paying attention for it, you weren't looking for it, you weren't expecting it. With that slow, plodding, persistent search, he, he broke down your objections against his, his call to repentance. And he sought you out, and he didn't leave you where you were. Others of you have a different story, and, and you have a story about how Christ sought you in the family that he, he had you born into, in the church in which you were raised, and, and you came into faith like, like receiving that pair of hand-me-down shoes that never fit until one day they were right and they were easy and they were comfortable and you, you grew into that faith that had been preached to you and proclaimed to you day after day for your whole life until it was easy. It was so easy that you tend to forget sometimes that he sought you out and he found you just the same. And maybe it's why lately when you pray for God's comfort, he seems to be answering no. Maybe it's why sometimes it feels like he's turning your whole life upside down and he's, he's shining a light and he's opening windows and he's lighting candles to look into corners that you would rather he not pay attention to. 
And even if he found you years ago and he brought you home on his shoulders rejoicing, still he's tracking down all of those areas of wandering repentance that we would rather keep hidden in the dark somewhere. And this is what he does. The Savior searches. He seeks. He keeps seeking his people until he finds them, and he doesn't stop until he brings his children home. When the son finds what he's looking for, the father rejoices. This is the last thing I think that Luke shows us uh, in this passage, our third point. We've seen the sinner's friend, and we've seen the Savior's search, and that all leads to the father's joy. Now here is, here's where the parables get interesting, because up until this point, if we were to stop at what we've studied together about these parables so far, it could have all been just a, a personal uh, a, a personal defense against the hostility of these scribes and the Pharisees. Now, they grumbled about him because they thought he had the, different, uh, the wrong approach to, to all these sinners. They thought he was going about it all wrong, and, and he explains himself. No, actually, I'm seeking them out. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm going after them. Okay, that's fine. You do that. That's okay for you, I suppose. Jesus can have his own thing, but if, if he's going to go after those people, as long as, as he's not dragging us along with him, we don't want any part of that. It could all be that. And if we stopped uh, that first parable at verse 4, that might be where we could leave it. But Jesus presses further, verse 5. When he has found it, when the shepherd finds his sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. He says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. In the second half of each of these parables, Jesus moves from giving an explanation of his own ministry to an invitation to others to come and share his joy. The same thing happens with the woman. Verse 9, when the woman finds her coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And that means that each of these parables ends with unfinished business. There's a call to come, a call to join, a call to rejoice, and we don't know what's going to happen. It's a cliffhanger. It's not unlike that, that parable of the great banquet that we saw two weeks ago, that the call of the gospel went out into the highways, into the hedges, compelled them to come in, and we don't know. What happened? Did anybody come in? Did anybody answer? Would anybody come and, and join the party? And here we see the same thing. The shepherd and the woman call out to their community to join the celebration, and we have the same questions. Could there really be neighbors who are so sour they would fold their hands and refuse to celebrate? More to the point of the scribes and the Pharisees. Could it possibly be that they're so hard-hearted that they would keep despising the sinners now that they've seen somebody else reaching out with compassion and mercy, seeking to rescue their souls? Could it really be that they would refuse to rejoice when sinners were being rescued from destruction? Well, there are many, actually, of their day that said that's exactly what they should do. They should refuse to rejoice. Don't have any part in that. And according to many of the Jews, there was another popular saying among the rabbis of the day, and this one said, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Could you imagine that as the slogan as your, of your evangelistic outreach? There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. 
from the world. And let's make that the, the key verse for the PCA agencies on ministries and, and missionaries. And let's, let's send out flyers and fundraisers to all the churches and the denomination. Let's ask them to contribute to the joy fund so we can send out our missionaries. We can make sure that the word doesn't go too far, that the wrong people don't hear this offer of Jesus Christ because, after all, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Well, if that was the opinion of Jesus' opponents, these closing lines of the parable are a frontline attack on their self-satisfied theology. Verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. Now, when you read that, imagine air quotes, I think. This is irony. The scripture tells us very clearly, there is none righteous, no, not one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Actually, each one, we've turned to our own way. And so imagine Jesus, I think, we have to, as he's, as he's saying these words, I tell you there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now pay attention to that language in verse 10. Jesus says there is joy before the angels of God. He doesn't say that there is joy among the angels of God. I read some, some commentaries this week, and they talked about what a wonderful thing it is that the angels rejoice when sinners repent, and I suppose maybe they do. That's not what Jesus says. He says there is joy before the angels, that is, before their faces. It is the joy that they witness, the angels of God gathered in heaven. They see joy, not just in one another, but they see a divine joy that is so far hidden from human eyes every time a sinner comes home to Jesus and he's carried on the shoulders of his shepherd. Each time one of God's lost children is found through faith and repentance, the almighty creator of time and reality is filled with joy. And celebration. Maybe you're surprised at that language. Maybe it sounds impious or, or unbiblical or maybe anti-Calvinist to say that God can be moved at all. When we talk about God in the Westminster even being with, without passions, we're not talking about it that way. There's a simplicity of God. He never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, maybe we think it gives too much credit to humanity to, to think that a single sinner could be so important that God would be not rejoicing and then suddenly rejoicing. Well, that's the witness of the scripture, actually. Not that, not that God changes when a sinner repents, but, but that there is a response, in a sense. Zephaniah chapter 3. God said, even in the Old Testament, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. What makes God rejoice? Is it when sinners who provoke him perish from the earth? He said in Ezekiel that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and they should live. He will rejoice over you with gladness, says Zephaniah 3, 17. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine what it sounds like when God sings? That's what he tells us. 
There is joy before the angels of God when a single sinner repents. And now you have it on Jesus' authority that when a sinner comes home to Jesus, the Father sings for joy. And if he's already found you, he's rejoicing over you. And your slow and steady daily repentance is a thing of beauty to him. It may be slower than you want it to be. It may be more plodding than you expect. But he rejoices. And if he's not yet found you, perhaps he's looking. Perhaps he's looking and he's waiting and perhaps he's sweeping up a dust cloud of your sin and sometimes it gets in your eyes and your throat and you can hardly stand it. And you wonder what he's doing, letting you see all of these things, letting you feel that you're lost, letting you feel that you're without him. Or maybe he's seeking after you so that he can bring you home and rejoice over you as well. This is what he sent Jesus into the world to do. God sent Jesus into the world to bring sinners home so that he would rejoice over them. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our propitiation, to be our savior, to be our deliverer, to be the one who saves us from our sin and gathers us to yourself. Thank you that you rejoice over us, though we can scarcely imagine what that might be like. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to catch a glimpse in your word and by your spirit as we believe what you've taught us. Help us to rejoice in, in your rejoicing, to take pleasure in your delight, to turn to you in repentance, and to be a part of rejoicing together when other sinners come home. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a part of of your celebration, and a part of your body and your church, we pray in Jesus' name.